Hello, my name is Cory, and welcome to the Mongol Empire podcast. It's been a few months since our last episode, quite a few months actually, uh, and this is mostly due to the fact that life has a habit of getting in the way of things. At this stage, for me, the podcast is still very much a hobby, rather than any kind of professional undertaking. So it's been a real balance between work, life and the research, to the effect that researchers often have to take a back seat to everything else. That's not to say, though, that I've not been researching. It's just been in fits and spurts. But finally, after all this time, I've uh, managed to put together the next episode, The Rise of Temujin. In what, instead of one episode, though, it's going to be a mini-series, if you like, over a number of episodes. And I'm planning on releasing these on a monthly basis. The benefit is that this should give me some time to do further research, write and produce new episodes of the podcast, whilst hopefully balancing all the other demands of life. So this episode is really an introduction to the Mongol people and the story of the childhood of the boy who would become Chinggis Khan. So let's jump right in. If you cast your minds back to episode one, we looked at how dynasty change in northern China assisted the creation of a Mongol confederation which under the leadership of Kabul Khan forced financial concessions from the Jin. Then, when the Jin decided to take a hands-off approach to dealing with the nomads, the Tartars were empowered and then led a coalition against the Mongols and fragmented them. So, we start today a little way back from this time frame, 1162, that we're talking about here, and we're going to look at the legendary origins of the Mongol people. Now, I feel I need to put in a little bit of a disclaimer. There are going to be a lot of names in this story, and whilst I have streamlined it as much as possible, it may still be a little overwhelming. I also have to apologise in advance for the inevitable butchering of said names. The Mongol people trace their origins to a blue grey wolf and his wife, a fallow deer. At some point, this harmonious, if not somewhat unconventional couple moved within sight of the mountain Burkan Kuldun, where they had a family. Burkan Kuldun is one of the important geographic names to remember in this story. As we go on, we shall see that the mountain becomes central to the Mongol sense of identity and their belief system. So after living within sight of the mountain for a number of generations, a descendant of the wolf and of the deer, named Alan the Fair, who coincidentally was also human at this point, married a man named Dobin. They were given permission by the Iriankai tribe to settle closer to the mountain, and one day Dobin went out hunting when he met a poor man and his son. The man was desperate for food, and he offered to exchange his son for some meat. The son would become a servant, in this case not extra food. Dobin accepted the offer, and took the son back to his camp and put him to work as a servant in his tent. After the passing of an unknown amount of time, Dobin died, leaving Alan to raise their two sons. And despite having no husband and only the servant in her tent, Alan then gave birth to three more sons. When the eldest two started questioning and muttering about the disgrace of having brothers born of a servant, Alan brought all of her children together. Quote, she seated them in a row, gave them each the shaft of an arrow, and said to them, Break it. 
A single arrow shaft. It took no great strength to break it, and each of them broke it and tossed it away. Then she bound together five shafts in a bundle, and giving the bundle to each in his turn, said to them, Break it. Each of the brothers held the five bound together, and no one could break them. End quote. Having shown the value of sticking together, a theme that crops up quite regularly, Alan went on to explain that the three younger boys were the result of divine intervention. It was eternal heaven blessing the family and giving it the authority to rule over all people. Despite this story, when Alan died, her sons decided to go their own ways. The youngest, Bodonchar, was considered to be a little bit of an idiot, so the herds were split only four ways, leaving him to fend for himself. But the reality was that Bodonchar was not an idiot. He listened, he watched, he understood how people worked, and could identify exploitable weaknesses, all whilst appearing to be simple, innocent and harmless. This act, for want of a better word, meant that Bodonchar gained the trust of a nearby tribe, who were happy to assist him and had no real interest in knowing his history. So when the brothers came to find him, Bodonchar was able to use this trust against the tribe. He united with his brothers and conquered them. And all five were now the founding leaders of a clan. Bodonchar named his clan Borjigin, and it would be this branch of the Mongol people that would fulfil the prophecy of eternal heaven and conquer the world. After seven generations of sons, Kabul was born, who we met last time. And under his leadership, the Mongols became a regional power, threatening the Jin in northern China. Kabul himself had seven sons, Okinbaka, Bartan the Brave, Kutagutu, Kutula, and three others. But when he died, Ambagai, the son of Kabul's great-uncle, was elected Khan. Now, don't worry if you're getting a little confused by these relationships, I have put together a family tree which can be found on mongolempirepodcast.com, just to clear things up a little bit. Ambergai had founded his own clan, named the Taichigud, but despite this, he remained on good terms with the sons of Kabul, to the extent that prior to his execution by the Jinn, he named two candidates to be Khan, his own son, Kadagan Tezi, and the middle son of Kabul, Kutula. The clans elected Kutula, and then he led the Mongol people on a campaign of revenge. Against the Jin, he had much success, but against the Tatar, it was a lot more even. Whether he was still Khan when our story concluded last time in 1162 is unclear, but the Tatar, backed by the Jin, inflicted a crushing defeat on the Mongols. The defeat caused not only the break of the coalition, but fractured the bonds of Mongol society. Lacking a unified leader, the Mongol people turned on each other. Kinship ties that had previously strengthened relationships were forgotten or ignored as clans turned to plunder and retaliation, drawing a once prosperous people into extreme poverty. And this was the world that Chinggis Khan would be born into. Before we go any further though, I think it's worth looking at where the majority of the information for these episodes are coming from. There are three main sources for the early Mongol history and life of Chinggis Khan. The Wan Shi is the official history of the Wan dynasty, written after its fall in 1368. Among other things, it catalogues events on the steppe, relationships with foreign powers, and provides biographies of some of the key people. 
Next, we have Rashid al-Din's Jami al-Taraviq, or the Compendium of Chronicles. Rashid al-Din was vizier to the Ilkhan Ghazan, who commissioned him to write a history of the Mongol people. As part of his research, he was given access to documents that were usually only viewable by members of the ruling family. The work, completed in the early 1300s, is considered to be one of the most important sources to come out of Mongol Iran, as it incorporates both written and oral Mongol history. The final source we have is the epic poem The Secret History of the Mongols. It covers the history of the Mongols from its legendary beginnings through to formation of the empire and then expansion under Ogodai, which is when it was likely written down. Of the three of these sources, only the secret history is widely available in an English translation. The entirety of the Jami al-Taraviq has been translated, but the section that contains the early history of the steppe is almost impossible to get hold of. Very little of the Wan Shi has been translated at all. This means that the majority of the quotes and the information used in these episodes have been taken from the secret history of the Mongols, and I've used snippets from the Wan Shi and Rashid al-Din from secondary sources. Coincidentally, I have recently obtained an English copy of the Jami al-Taraviq, but it was a bit too late to use in these episodes, so I, I will be drawing on it in the future. But what about other non-Mongol or Chinese sources? Well, these often pick up the Mongol story from the point that the chronicler's country was violently dragged into the Mongol sphere of power, and quite often they provide very little definitive information about the early period of Mongol history. For instance, Marco Polo reports that Chinggis was made king in 1187, Bar Habreus begins Chinggis's story around 1204, and Ibn al-Athir, who chronicles the crusading period in quite extensive depth, uh, only really starts the Mongol story with the invasion of the Khwarazm Shah. Most of the Eurasian sources, if you like, only really start with any certainty after about 1200. That's the main sources covered now. Let's return to the narrative. As I said earlier on, Kabul Khan had seven sons. One of these sons was called Bartan the Brave. Bartan the Brave had a son called Yesugai, and Yesugai was the father of Chinggis Khan. Whilst he wasn't one of the main leaders in the Mongol tribe, Yesugai did lead the Kiat clan, who were influential in their own right. And let me briefly explain the difference between a tribe and a clan. A tribe was typically made up of many different clans, for example, Borjigin, Taichigur, etc. And they were descended from a common ancestor, in the Mongols' case, Alan the Fair. The clans often worked semi-autonomously, but the bonds of kinship supposedly ensured that they worked together against external threats or towards a common goal. Clan hierarchy within a tribe was based on seniority, with longer established clans being given greater importance within the tribal structure. Overall leadership of the tribe was supposed to be restricted to members of these senior clans. In theory, these kinship links created social and military obligations between the clans, which should prevent a tribe from fracturing too much. But in reality, junior clans could gain promotion through murder and increase their strength by recruiting non-related tribesmen, meaning that kinship relationships may have had limited effectiveness. Indeed, anthropologist Thomas Barfield doubts whether any tribal confederation actually rose entirely on the basis of shared ancestry. And if we look at the origins of Yesugai's power, it does seem to have come in part from external influences. Now, I don't really want to go into too much detail at this point, 
we've got enough to be getting on with. But it is sufficient to say that Rashid al-Din describes Yesugai as a little bit of a renegade who rejected the advice of Ketula Khan and decided to forge a close relationship with the controversial Khan of the Karaid tribe. I'm planning a short episode in the future to look at this relationship because the Khan of the Karaid, who we are going to meet in due course, is a very interesting character and the history of the Karaid tribe is quite deep actually. But anyway, Yesugai was out hunting one day when he spotted Yike Chiladu, a noble of the Merkit tribe, returning home with his new wife Hogalan Ujin. Seeing that she was beautiful, Yesugai returned to his tent to get his brothers Nekun Tesi and Daratai Odchigin. The trio then chased after Chiladu. Hogalan, seeing the danger that Chiladu was going to be in, urged him to ride off and save himself, saying, quote, As long as you've got your life, you'll be able to find some girl to marry. When you find her, just name her Hogalun for me. But go now, and save your own life. She then set up a loud wailing, and she cried till she stirred up the waters of the Onan River, till she shook the trees in the forest and the grass in the valleys. End quote. It was at this point that Yesugai's brother Daratai pointed out that if Cheladu really loved her, he wouldn't be several mountains away and getting more distant. Yesugai then took Hogalun as his wife. The secret history suggests that under the dual leadership of Ketula Khan and Kadagan, the Mongol people met the Tartar 13 times in battle, but were unable to get revenge for the death of Ambergai. During this time, Yesugai had camped his people at Delagun Hill on the Onan River, in what is now the northeast of modern Mongolia. During one of the battles, Yesugai captured a Tartar leader, an event that coincided with the birth of the couple's first son. Quote, it was here Chinggis Khan was born. As he was born, he emerged clutching a blood clot the size of a knucklebone die in his right hand. They gave him the name Temujin, saying he was born when his father had captured the Tartar Temujin Uj. End quote. And that was the birth of the future Chinggis Khan, as told by the secret history. Very straightforward, no mysticism, no deadly portents, just a baby clutching a large blood clot. The birth of Temujin did become increasingly based in legend as the years went by. In one case, Hogalun was impregnated by a beam of white light from heaven, but the sources closest to the event provide a fairly prosaic recounting of his birth. The year of Temujin's birth is hotly disputed, Rashid al-Din states that he was 72 at his death in 1227, which gives a year of birth of 1155. The Wan Shi and other sources place his birth in the mid-1160s, and scholars generally accept 1165 or 1167 as his year of birth, on the basis that following Rashid al-Din's dating, Temujin would only have begun empire building in his 50s, invaded Central Asia in his 60s, and led the final campaign against Caesia in his 70s. Whilst this isn't impossible, the later year of birth also fits in better with the events of the secret history, so this is the dating that I will be following. Over the next nine years, Hogalun gave birth to three more sons, Kassar, Kachigan, and Tamuj, and there was a daughter, Temulan. Yesugai also had two other sons, with another wife, Bekta and Belgutai. As a child, Temujin is described as having fire in his eyes and a face filled with light, signs that suggest intelligence and perhaps an interest or an awareness of what is going on around him. The people he encounters in the secret history see this as a mark for his future greatness. And when Temujin was nine years old, 
Yesugai felt that it was time to arrange a marriage for him. The marriage would have to be with someone external to the Kiat clan, and the resulting nuptials would result in an alliance between the two parties, so it was an important decision. Yesugai settled on finding a bride from the Olkhanugud, Hogalun's tribe. The decision made, he set off for the Olkhanugud camp, accompanied by Temujin. En route, they encountered Day the Wise, a man of the Ungarad, who invited them to share his food, and then set about convincing Yesugai that actually an Ungarad girl was far better bride for the son of a nobleman than whatever choice he had already made. Quote, Since the days of old, we Ungarad have been protected by the beauty of our daughters, by the loveliness of our granddaughters. So we've stayed out of battles and wars. When you elect a new Khan, we offer our daughters to sit by the Khan, and he places them up on the throne. Since the days of old, the Ungarad have had Khartun as their shields. End quote. This passage offers an interesting insight into the complexities of steppe life. Whilst it was undoubtedly brutal, there seems to have been an alternative to maintaining status to warfare and bloodshed. The Ungarad were wealthy, yet there is no indication that this wealth was threatened at any point at this time in history. The position of security was obtained through diplomacy. The marriage of brides to other clans and tribes provided the Ungarad with wealth and alliances that gave the tribe protection from any potential aggressors. This position was maintained by staying strictly neutral in steppe politics. The fact that a nobleman such as Yesugai would consider an Ungarad bride as a viable match for his eldest son is testament to the idea that tribal reputation and prestige did not rely on martial prowess. As you might have guessed at this point, Yesugai was indeed convinced by Day's arguments, and was shown his daughter, Bort. The secret history describes Bort in much the same way as young Temujin, saying that she was a girl whose face was filled with light, whose eyes filled with fire, which really lays on the idea that the match was inevitable. Yesugai agreed to the marriage arrangement, and then assented to Day's request that Temujin be left with the Ungarad, so that they could get to know him a bit better. As he was preparing to return to the Kiat, Yesugai said to Day, quote, I'll leave you, my son, for a while. You should know that he's frightened by dogs. End quote. This is an interesting piece of information to reveal to the audience. Despite having these marks of greatness, the young Temujin is still a human, sharing the same fears as ordinary people. It is also perhaps a nod to the fact that in becoming Chinggis Khan, he had to overcome these fears, exemplified by the four dogs of war that he would eventually come to have. So Yesugai returned to his people, leaving Temujin with his future in-laws. On the way back, Yesugai was invited to join the campfire of a group of Tartar tribesmen. Steppe hospitality meant that it was considered bad manners to hurt someone invited to share fire and food. This group of Tartar tribesmen decided to ignore this custom. Recognising Yesugai as the man who had inflicted a number of defeats on their people, the Tartars poisoned his food, and three days later, having returned to his people, the full effect of the poison took hold. On his deathbed, Yesugai sent a boy to the Ungarad to retrieve Temujin from Day the Wise, and he then revealed the Tartars to be the poisoners. And this was really the final nail in the coffin of the Tartar people, as far as the secret history is concerned. These were people who happily broke step custom. They had caused the death of Ambergai Khan when he had been on a mission to tie the two tribes in marriage, an insult yet to be satisfied. And now they were cowardly poisoners. 
breaking the sanctity of the camp to get rid of an enemy they were unable to best in warfare. From now on, the Tartar people deserve everything that Temujin would do to them. But that is in the future, and that future was in the balance. Temujin was returned to his family, but a power struggle was developing. Under Yesugai, the Kiat and the Taichigud were happily living together, but with no heir or suitable member of the Kiat clan ready to take a step up, this leadership was up for grabs. The bonds of kinship between the two clans, probably established by the dual nomination of Cthulhu and Kadagan, had remained because of the strength of the Yesugai's leadership, but now he was gone, the Taichigud leaders felt that they were in a good position for a power grab. It began by excluding Hogalun from taking her expected place at ceremonies honouring the ancestors. Ambergai's widows refused to give her a share of the offered meat, and an insult was engineered to allow for the separation of the two clans. The following day, the secret history writes, the Taichigud leaders, Targutai Kiriltug and Todogen Gert, ordered their people to pack up camp and move further down the Onan River, stating, quote, Everything has changed now. The deepest waters are dry. The brightest gem has been broken to pieces. End quote. One old man tried to stop the Taichigud from leaving, but ended up with a spear in his back for his troubles. The secret history has the young Temujin caring for the dying man, weeping at both the injustice and the hopelessness of the situation. But Hogalun wasn't going to take this lying down. As the widow of a leader, she still had rights over the people. Riding out into camp with Yesugai's banner, she managed to halt the exodus of the tribesmen to the Taichigud. That was until the Taichigud leaders came back and forced the larger part of the Mongol people to abandon the family. Hogalun now had to ensure the survival of five children on her own, with only the resources provided by the steppe. And that's it for today. Check out the Mongol Empire podcast website at mongolempirepodcast.com, where all of the sources used in this miniseries can be found. I'm also slowly developing other resources to help give context to Mongol history, such as family trees and hopefully some maps as well. In the meantime, if you have the urge to get in contact with the podcast, you can email me at Corey, that's C-O-R-E-Y, at mongolempirepodcast.com, or on Twitter at mongolempirepod, and I will try and get back to you promptly. Until next time, though, take care.